0: All right, hope you have some notes, hope you have a Bible close by. We're going to talk about sanctification tonight, and I'll just start with a definition, I'll put it up on the screen. To sanctify means to set something apart as holy, or to purify something and make it holy, to make it complete, to make it pure to set it apart for a special purpose, and so we're talking about sanctification. This is something that takes place in our life, and we'll try to make sense of it tonight. In seminary, I had a professor that told a pretty good story that I think is um, a pretty good illustration of what sanctification looks like in somebody's life. This guy grew up in rural Mississippi and went to a small country church, First Baptist Church somewhere, I'm sure. And uh, he said that as a child, everyone in church was shocked one day when sort of the notorious sinner in town came walking into church service. Really bad guy that you don't expect to see at church. Everybody knows his reputation. He's just kind of a scoundrel and he comes rolling into church one Sunday. And uh, you know how Baptists are. You sit in the same seat every week. So this professor, when he was a young kid, they had their seat. And this scoundrel of a guy comes walking in and he comes down the pew right in front of him. And he sits down right in front of him and he puts his arms up on the seat like this, puts his elbows out. And he said on his forearm, he had this giant tattoo of a naked woman. And there he sat, you know, 10-year-old boy, however old he was, and the whole church service, that woman is looking at him, no clothes on. And uh, the guy kept coming to church Kept coming to church, and every Sunday, same seat, put his arms up right there. And after a few weeks, the guy got saved. He became a believer. And it was just about two or three weeks after this man became a believer, he walked into church. My professor's sitting in his seat. He sits down in his seat right there in front, and he puts his arm up there, and that woman is wearing a bikini. (laughs) Brand new bikini. And uh, how did that happen? That is something else. And that went on for a while, and it was, I don't know, six months, a year, a couple years, I don't remember the time frame, but a little bit of time went on. They came in one day, and that woman was wearing a dress. She had put clothes on. And this he just described this progression of this guy, and I think that's a pretty good description of sanctification, not for my professor or for the tattooed woman, but for the man who became a believer. When he was not a believer, he didn't see anything wrong with that. He wasn't concerned about it. But as he began to follow Christ, he realized some things needed to change. And yes, that's sort of a silly example. I'm sure he had other things in his life that needed to change. But over time, that continued. And he continued to see new things and to see old things in a new way. And God continued to work in his life. So that's kind of of sanctification, kind of what we're talking about tonight. I'll just start off with this. I really think... Man, almost every week when we've talked about these doctrines, I've been tempted to say this is a doctrine that Christians in the United States don't understand very well. And we need to teach it better and preach it better and disciple people better. Um, And this week, I really, really feel that way. I think that Christians, especially Bible Belt Christians in the United States, don't really have a good grasp of what the Bible has to say about sanctification. And there's sort of some confusion. We're actually going to talk about this Sunday morning in our study through Philippians. We've come to a a point where we're going to talk about some of these terms I'm about to throw at you. But there's sort of two deviations off of this biblical idea of sanctification, and one of them gets sort of labeled with the term, you've probably heard it, legalism. You have some well-meaning people in the Bible Belt who sort of in their attempt to pursue sanctification, they end up adding a bunch of rules to the Bible that are not really God's rules, they're their rules. And they not only try to add them for their own good and benefit, but for everyone else's good and benefit. And they try to impose their rules on other people. Things like, you know, who you can hang out with and what you can do in your free time and what sort of ratings are okay for movies or television or what sort of bands you can or cannot listen to. or You know the the kinds of things I'm talking about. Come up with these rules and they try to impose them on people. And they end up saying, if you don't keep my rules, you must not love God very much and you're not a very good Christian really doesn't have anything to do with Scripture or following Jesus. It's just their own sort of man-made set of stuff. That's one mistake, the legalist. The other mistake you see a lot of times is something called antinomianism, and it doesn't quite roll off the tongue like legalist. But the antinomian, anti, against, namos is the Greek word for law. The idea is that they're against laws, against commands, against rules. And these are the people that say to the legalists, wait a minute. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and our good works don't have anything to do with that. So you can experience God's grace and you can receive salvation. And then really there's no moral standard that you have to try to live up to or follow because you're saved by grace. What you do doesn't matter anyways. So you meet Jesus, you accept his grace, you receive salvation, and then you can just sort of do whatever you want to do. And they look at people, not only the legalists way over there, but they look at the biblical position and they sometimes say, well, you're just a bunch of Pharisees. You guys are just like the Pharisees, coming up with all these rules and telling me I have to do this and I have to stop doing this. You're just a bunch of Pharisees. And these guys over here, way over on this side, they're looking in this direction, the legalists, and they're saying, well, you guys, you guys are just a bunch of sinners and do whatever you want and, you know... You start this name-calling stuff, and both of those positions are totally unbiblical and not what we're going to talk about tonight when it comes to sanctification. So we're just going to start with the simple question we've asked every week, what do I need to know about sanctification? Number one, sometimes, and this is rarely, but sometimes in the Bible, the word sanctification is used in a positional sense. This would be called positional sanctification. We talked about this a few weeks back. I think I mentioned it. And if you will, just look quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. This will sort of make sense of what I'm trying to explain to you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Paul says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul says to the most dysfunctional, wicked, sinful, messed up, confused church, you guys have been sanctified. Not you are being sanctified. It's ongoing. But he says it's done. It's happened. It's finished. You have been sanctified. And what he's talking about here is not you've gone through this whole process of becoming more holy. What he's saying is God has set you apart in a positional sense. You were once, to use Paul's terminology from the letter to the Colossians, you were once part of the kingdom of darkness, but God has moved you into the kingdom of his Son. He has set you apart for salvation. And the idea here when he says to the church in Corinth that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus is not that they're perfectly holy or perfectly obedient, but it's just that God has set them apart. So sometimes you see the word used in that sense, In the New Testament. Here's the the typical sense of the word. This is number two, and I just stole the definition uh, from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book. I, I didn't think I could improve on it. He says Sanctification is a progressive work, meaning it continues and it builds over time, of both God and man, both are involved, that makes Christians more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in their actual lives. And really, almost every part of that definition is pretty important. Okay, It's a progressive work of God and man, meaning it's something that once you become a believer, it starts and it's going to keep going until your death progressing more and more and more and more. God is involved in it. We'll talk about that. And you are involved in it. And we'll talk about that tonight. And here's the two things that happen in it. You become more and more free from sin, meaning the longer you follow Jesus, the less you should sin. The more repentant you should be. The more Christ-like you should be. And that, I'm jumping into the last part of it, you become more and more like Jesus meaning it's not that you stop sinning and you just become more like a buddhist monk or more like gandhi or more like a you know some moral person but it's you become more and more like christ believing what he taught listening to what he said to do obeying his voice loving his word some of the things that Don talked about last week. So that's a pretty good definition, and that's normally what we're talking about, this progressive work of God and man. Number three, this is pretty important. you really got to get this. Sanctification follows justification. And I wish I would have put in that on your notes, it always follows justification. Sanctification always follows justification. Always. Now, I'm going to qualify that, but you've got to get that in your brain, and maybe you just write that word always in there. Once a person is justified, when they're declared righteous by God, sanctification always comes after that. And I like visual things, and so I'm going to give you a little chart here. This is not original to me. I stole this from, from Grudem, but this is a helpful chart to help you understand this. Comparing justification and sanctification. Okay, Justification, first off on the chart is concerned with your legal standing before God. To justify is to declare righteous. So a sinner stands before God. He's clearly guilty. She's clearly guilty. But they have faith in Jesus. And so the righteousness of Jesus is credited to their account. Their sin is counted as paid for at the cross. And God declares that sinner righteous. He justifies them legally, you have been justified. No different than if you think about you commit a crime and you go downtown and you stand before the judge and the judge says, look, you're clearly guilty, but because this person has done the right thing and he's going to take your punishment and his obedience will count for you, we're going to let you go free as if you've never done this thing. That's the idea of justification. Sanctification, on the other hand, deals with the internal condition of your heart. Okay, justification, when God declares you righteous, you're still a sinful person. Martin Luther described it as when justification happens in your life, you are at the same time righteous and sinner. Because God declares you righteous, but you're still a sinful person. Sanctification is the process, it comes after justification, where God begins to work in you to make you less and less and less of a sinful person, and more and more and more like Jesus. So it has to do with your heart, your internal condition. Justification, second line, is once for all time, meaning it's never repeated. It happens to a Christian one time. Only once does God look at a sinner and say, you're justified. It only needs to happen once when this exchange takes place. Christ's righteousness and your sin, there's an exchange, and God declares you righteous, and that happens once. Sanctification is continuous, and it goes on throughout your life. It's this ongoing process. So justification is a one-time event. Sanctification is a, a continuous, ongoing event. Okay, one more difference, or another difference. Justification is entirely God's work. He does it. You have nothing to do with it. God is the one who declares a sinner righteous. In sanctification, we cooperate with God. God is at work and we are at work. Okay, justification. It is perfect in this life. Meaning, once God justifies a sinner, they can't lose it. They don't need to have it done again. It's not on some sort of sliding scale. He declares you perfectly and completely Righteous, it's complete, it's finished. Sanctification is not perfect in this life, it's not perfect until the next life because it's this ongoing process. Last line justification is experienced the same by all Christians. Meaning, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have been justified, you can't say, well, I've been more justified than you or less justified than you. Justification is what it is. It's God declaring a sinful person righteous. And it's the same for me or for Billy Graham or for you or for your Sunday school teacher or the town hoodlum that came in with the naked woman tattooed on his arm. It's all the same. God declares sinful people righteous. Sanctification is greater in some than it is in others. It happens at different speeds, at different rates. We're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. I'll show you some pictures. Sanctification number four has three stages. Three stages. And I think what we'll do is I'm just going to give you these three and I'm going to let you look up the verses here and then we'll look at some pictures. So, stage one, it begins at regeneration. Regeneration, we've talked about that, is when a sinful person is born again. God causes us to be born again. Ephesians 2, you were dead and God made you alive. John chapter 3, Jesus to Nicodemus. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. How, how can I do that? You can't do that. God's Spirit does that. It's the work of the Spirit. So at regeneration, sanctification begins. Okay? Secondly, second stage, it continues through your life. We've talked about that already. It's a continuous process in your life. Thirdly, it ends at glorification. So it begins when you're born again. It continues throughout your life, and it's finished. It's complete when you're glorified in the presence of God in the next life. Okay, so let me give you a a picture of sort of what this looks like. This comes out of Mr. Grudem's book. I'm leaning on him pretty heavily tonight, and I like his picture. You see at the bottom, that's you, the non-Christian, okay? And you're bopping along, up and down, but you are in the, in the, the part of the graph where you are a slave to sin. And then comes stage one, your conversion or your, your regeneration, you're born again. And there's this jump in the line, right? You don't jump all the way up to perfect holiness, but there's a change in you instantly, Right, In one moment, you're part of the kingdom of darkness. In the next, you're part of the kingdom of Jesus. In one moment, you're following the prince of the power of the air. In the next moment, you're following Jesus Christ. In one moment, you're spiritually dead, and now you're spiritually alive. And God does this to you when you're born again, and you see this jump in the line. And then you see the next stage is the Christian life. And it's not like just a rocket ship going straight up, but it's sort of like, a jagged line and over time it's progressing upward. And then you die, everybody's gonna die. Number three, and the line jumps up again, and your sanctification is complete, and you're glorified living in the presence of God. Okay? This is pretty good. And when I looked this up today, I saw I read it in the book and I said somebody's put this on the internet somewhere, and I found it on Google. And then I also found another picture where somebody had added their own lines. And adjusted some things, and I kind of like it. So look at this next picture. Same graph, and look at the little dip right there in number two. This is somebody reading Grudem saying, okay, that little line right there is pretty good, but in my life I went like down in a valley for a while, and it was not so good, and then got a hold of me, God got a hold of me, and things continued to climb back up that way. Your jagged little line after conversion may look a little bit different than mine, and mine's not going to look exactly like yours, but the long-term trend is upward. Less and less sin, more and more like Christ, even if you have that dip in it. They've also added a line. You see the straight up at conversion, all the way up to perfect holiness, and sort of scribbled up there at the top, but it's saying, we are sanctified So if you go back to number one, where we talk about positional sanctification, the person writing the notes here says, look, at conversion, you're set apart. Completely and perfectly set apart for God, and nothing can change that. That line goes all the way up instantly, sort of like your justification. It happens, and it's immediate, and it's complete, and that's done. But this process, you can see, goes on through the life of the believer, and it goes up and it goes down, okay? Number five, sanctification is primarily the work of God, yet we are required to strive to be more holy. If you lose either one of those, you just sort of start to lose the biblical balance of what you've got to have in sanctification. If you forget that sanctification is first and foremost what God is doing in you, you're going to end up thinking this is all on me, and I got to really pull myself up by my bootstraps. And your emotions are going to be a roller coaster because on the days when you feel like you're really obeying Jesus, you're just going to pat yourself on the back and walk around with a strut and act like you're really something special. And then on the days where you know you blow it, you're going to be down in the dumps, moping around, saying, "I don't even think I'm saved. I don't. Oh, I'm the worst ever. God doesn't love me. I'm going to hell." And in the balance there, in the middle, you say, this is what God is doing in me, but it's also something that I have to strive to do. I can't just buy into this philosophy of, oh, just let go and let God, just lay back and it's all going to be okay. No, the Bible talks about striving for holiness and striving for sanctification. So let's look up a few of these verses, okay? Look at Philippians 1.6. This should be familiar from Sunday mornings. We're going to talk about it again this Sunday morning. It's going to come up as we're now in Philippians 3. We're going to have to go back to chapter 1. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God started the work in you, and he intends to see it through to the end. I am certain that he will continue this work in you and your sanctification will progress. Look over a few pages to the right to 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll come back to 1 Thessalonians in a minute, but 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Paul is praying for the church in Thessalonica, and here's his prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He's not asking them to sanctify themselves. He's asking God to do the work in the Thessalonians. May God sanctify you. is something that God does in our life. Look at Hebrews, going to the right a little bit further. Hebrews chapter 13 Hebrews 13, way at the end of the book. The word sanctification is not actually used here, but you certainly see the idea of God doing it. Hebrews 13, 20. May the God of peace, so we're reading another prayer. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, may God equip you, "...with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight." That's sanctification. God working in you so that you do what's pleasing in His sight. And that's the prayer here. "...through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen." So you see these passages where it is the work of God in the Christian. Now let's back up and look. It's also something that we do. Flip the page to the left and look at Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and, continuing this idea of striving, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have to strive for that. This is, sanctification is becoming more holy. And the author of Hebrews is saying you're going to have to strive and work and labor and fight for the holiness that if you don't have it, you're not going to see the Lord. And it's so tempting to read that verse by itself and to say, man, it sounds like we got to be good enough if we want to see God. We have to strive for it, for holiness. But you read it in the context of the Scriptures, and you just read Hebrews 13, and he's saying, God's going to work in you. It's his work, and you're going to strive. When God is truly working on you, the result is going to be you striving for this holiness. Flip back to the left and, and look at first Thessalonians four three. We'll just work backwards this time. First Thessalonians four verse three says this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, as one example of what that might look like. That's something that you do. God's not going to abstain you from sexual immorality. You're going to abstain yourself from sexual immorality. So yes, it's God's work, but it's also your work. And this is God's will for you. Flip back and look at one more, 2 Corinthians 7.1. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. That's something that we're doing. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness. It's the idea of sanctification. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we are striving for this. It's God's work, and it's something that we strive for. You have to hold both of those together. Okay. One last thought here, and then we'll get to the why question. What do you need to know? Number six, sanctification happens through the consistent practice of the means of grace. It's not a, a term we use very often. We usually say spiritual disciplines, but it's through spiritual disciplines that sanctification takes place. And I like the, the term of calling spiritual disciplines the means of grace. I like it because spiritual disciplines doesn't sound fun to me. And not that that's the standard for what's true and right and you know the things that we talk about. But that just sounds not good. Spiritual disciplines, it just sounds so dry. And what the idea is, is that we're doing these things as means of God's grace at work in us. And the staff right now is reading a book. It's called Means of Grace. And in the book, he talks about three types of spiritual disciplines. He says, there is, broadly speaking hearing God's voice. You do that not by getting really quiet and waiting for something to sort of echo the room. You do that by opening your Bible and reading it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, listening to people teach it, listening to podcasts, watching sermons online. Bible intake is a means of grace. It's a spiritual discipline. If you want to grow in sanctification, it won't happen apart from intaking and digesting God's word the second category he talks about is us talking to God us having God's ear praying responding to him in worship and in prayer and sometimes we might fast from food so that we can focus on that sometimes we might write our prayers down if we need help focusing and staying awake I know I need help with that But the idea is that you are communicating to God, not just out of a vacuum, but after you've heard his word, you and I are responding to him in prayer. And the last category, the reason I like this book probably the most, is that he talks about the body of Christ and the fellowship we have together. That is a means of grace. It's a spiritual discipline. We gather together so that we can grow in our sanctification. Here's the truth, okay? I think our praise band is fantastic. And I love coming in here on Wednesday nights and singing hymns. But you can get on YouTube and uh, iTunes and whatever and find more talented people, more polished musicians. So, I mean, if it's just a matter of what's the best, you can find it at a different church or, shoot, you can find stuff on the Internet that will beat any church in the county. And if you're looking for just riveting preaching that keeps you on the edge of your seat, I promise you can find better online. Videos, sermons, podcasts, audio, it is not hard to find. So you say, well, why don't we just stay at home and get on the computer and listen to our little worship playlist and watch our little sermon podcast? It's because coming together as the body of Christ is one of the ways that God grows us in sanctification, makes us more like Jesus and roots out sin in our lives. We come together for that purpose and it's one of the means of grace. So, just as a little preview, no one else knows this. You're the first ones that get to, to hear this. We're going to take this study all the way through the spring. We're going to take a break for the summer. And then, we have two new Wednesday night studies coming in the fall. And the first one is actually has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now, but it's the first one, so I'm going to mention it. It's called The Five Solas of the Reformation. You may not know that this fall... October 31st will be exactly 500 years, exactly, since Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so we're going to talk about the solas of the Reformation, meaning the idea that uh, salvation is in Christ alone. It's, in, it's through faith alone. It's by God's grace alone that we find uh, God speaking to us in authority in Scripture alone, and that everything we do is for the glory of God alone. The five alones, or the Latin term would be solus. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines, the means of grace. And we're just going to talk about what they are, and how you do them, and how you grow in them, and how we do them together, and how you do them individually. And so that's what we're going to talk about in the fall. One last thought on this, this idea of spiritual disciplines, okay? The means of grace. Um, in the United States, probably more than any other place in any other time in history, we have taken sanctification and we've ripped it away from the means of grace. Bible reading, prayer, going to church, all of those things. We've ripped it away from that. And we look at all that stuff and we just call it like, oh that's just like routine ritual. You're just going through the motions of stuff. And a lot of evangelical Christians in the United States look to events for like super hyper drive sanctification. Like it's more exciting for most of us to say I read my Bible every day for a year? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. I'd rather just go to the the conference in san antonio and listen to the big name speaker for a weekend and i get to go shopping when i go do that so i'm going to get to go shopping and i get to hear the big name speaker and that's going to help me grow spiritually more than reading my bible every day for a year baloney it is not or we say look Reading my Bible every day for a year. Have you ever got to Leviticus and had to get through that? Do you know how hard it is and numbers and all the names? Look, I'm just going to go to Mardell or Family Christian. Family Christian's having a clearance sale right now because they're closing. So I'm going to get some, some stuff off the bestseller rack really, really cheap. Let me get the bestsellers. I'm going to read these bestsellers by these famous authors, and that's going to help me really grow closer to Jesus. More than, I'm going to read this one book off the bestseller list, more than reading my Bible every day, that's how I'm going to really grow. No, you're not. The means of grace, for a reason, are called spiritual disciplines. Because they're hard, and they're slow, and they're not for the faint of heart. And sanctification doesn't happen in a weekend. It doesn't happen when you get to page 205 and close the book and feel like you're done. It is an ongoing, difficult process that you just have to slug your way through in this life. And the reason we call them spiritual disciplines is because it takes discipline. But that's how God grows us, and that's how God works sanctification in our life. Okay. Why do I need to know it? Seven thoughts here. Number one, growth in holiness is not optional. Sanctification is not optional. You don't get a choice. This is not an add-on for people who want to go into ministry someday. or This is not an add-on for somebody who's going to teach a Sunday school class. This is not something you tack on to your life just because you're going on a mission trip or you're going to work at VBS at the church. This is something that every Christian is expected to do and it starts with jesus himself look what jesus said in mark chapter 8 mark 8 verse 34 jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them if anyone Not just the disciples. The crowd is there and the disciples are there. And he's talking to all of them. And he says, if anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're not negotiating at this point. This is not an optional thing. You don't get the option, you know, the little graph with the the line that goes up a little bit. You don't get the option of jumping up into spiritual life at your conversion and then flatlining your whole life and then jumping up again when you die. That's not how God works in people's lives. There's this jump and then there's a slug it out growth. Slow, gradual, over time, but it's not optional. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow me. Number two, we're just going to fill these in and move on because we're going to talk about it Sunday. But we must always beware of legalism and antinomianism. They're always lurking right below the surface. In your church, in your Sunday school class, in your own heart, you've got to watch for these these temptations. And most of us, you know yourself, most of us are prone to lean one way or the other. But they're always a danger and we've got to be alert. Number three. Sanctification involves putting off and putting on. i try to explain what I mean there. It involves putting off and putting on. Look at Ephesians 4. Just read some of this passage to get the idea of what Paul's driving at. Starting in verse 17. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him. And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. There's the putting off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. Do you see it right there? There's a don't do this and a do this. Don't be a bunch of liars. Speak the truth. Verse 26. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't have this kind of anger, but have this kind. Don't deal with it this way. Deal with it this way. Verse 28 is is great. Let the thief... No longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He doesn't just say, stop stealing, but he says, go get a job and work and earn some money so you can bring that money and share it with somebody who needs help. That's a don't do this and a do this, a putting off and a putting on. And it continues all the way through this passage. Uh, let's look at one more I don't have this on your notes but look at Proverbs 23 I came across this passage this morning and it just fit with what we're talking about here Proverbs 23 verse 17 says let not your heart envy sinners but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day Don't do this, do this. Don't be envious of sinful people and the fun it looks like they're having and the benefits it looks like they're reaping and all the advantages it looks like they have. Don't do that. But fear God. There's a don't and there's a do. There's a putting off and a putting on. And a lot of the times, honestly, what we sort of teach to people and preach to people is just you need to quit cussing. You need to quit being jealous. You need to quit doing this. You need to quit doing that. You need to stop this. You need to stop that. We don't ever tell them what they're actually supposed to do. And the Bible is pretty consistent. Old Testament and Proverbs in the book of Psalms in the New Testament and Paul's letters in saying you've got to put one thing off, but you've also got to put one thing on. And your willpower alone is not going to be enough just to stop. Just stop what you're doing. You also have to start doing something On the positive side. So we're putting off and putting on. Okay, number four. Your ongoing struggle against sin is a sign of life. It's a sign of life. And I'm going to let you read Romans 7. Paul says things like, I don't do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want, I just keep doing. And you know, I want to do right, and evil just lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God, but there's this other law waging war against my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A lot of times I'll have people come visit with me, and they'll just say, man, I am struggling with this sin, and I just can't lick it. Like, I'm, I'm fighting against it as hard as I can, um, and I just, I can't have victory over it i just can't put it in my rearview mirror and be done with it and my response to them is usually well you're not dead yet when you die it'll be in the rearview mirror until you die you're going to have to slug it out that's the way it works and yes you're going to do better and you're going to increase it's going to be gradual and it's going to be over time it's not going to happen in a moment more than likely but it's going to be a fight And sometimes people need to hear the fact that you're struggling with it is a sign that you're alive. The lost person doesn't struggle with envy. They just envy. The believer envies and they feel this conviction about it. They feel God's Spirit making them uneasy. They read the Scriptures and it exposes them and they realize there's a problem in their life. And the fact that you are struggling with sin, even if your line may dip down for a moment... Moving in the right direction is a sign of spiritual life, and you should be encouraged by that. Keep fighting. Keep striving. Okay, number five, when you, when you mortify sin, that's just an old Puritan word that means kill it. When you kill sin, you can't focus on one sin. You can't just say, I really got to get this one issue in check in my life. Like, you may need to get that issue in check, but it's not the one issue you need to get in check. It's one of the many issues you need to get in check in your life. And James is a great picture of this. Look at James chapter 1. James 1, verse 19. James says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. And slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So he's talking about anger and how you deal with it and how you grow, right? And again, you see the put off, right? The put off and the put on. You've got to be slow to anger. What's the opposite of that? You've got to be quick to hear. You don't need to talk so much and just fly off the handle, but you need to be quick to listen to people. So there's this positive and this negative. So we're dealing with anger. And then look what he says in verse 21. Put away all filthiness. And rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If you really want to root out anger in your life, work at rooting out sin in your life. You can't just laser beam focus on one and ignore the rest, but you root all of it out and you fight against all of it. Okay, number six for our charismatic friends. Spiritual warfare is real, but you can't blame the devil for your ongoing sin. You guys know I spent one summer in uh, Hawaii working at a church. And there was a sweet lady there that um, I had to work with on several things. And I think I've told you about her before. She blamed the devil for everything. Like red lights in traffic. And I'm out of milk. Satan, Satan drank it. Milk's gone. Satan did it. I mean, just everything the devil was out to get her, including sin issues in her life. Like, you know spend a lot of time with this lady, and you spend time with people. You see sin come out in them, and she would realize that it came out. And For example, she'd say, man, I know I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be talking about that person. It's just the old devil working on me. Wow. He might be working on you, but you don't just get to blame him for it. Like, you don't have any responsibility for it. It's yours, and you've got to own it, and you've got to strive against him. And so you can read these passages. Um, some of them talk about spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. That's real. But it doesn't mean you get to blame the devil for your sin. And we'll just look at one of these verses. Look at Colossians 1. I've mentioned this verse already tonight. Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You once were a slave to that domain, but you've been moved out of that domain. You're not a slave to that stuff anymore. You might be continuing to submit to it, but his power is not so great that you can't, in the power of the Spirit and the power of the gospel, overcome these things and deal with these things in an obedient way. You've been moved out of that kingdom, so you can't blame the devil. last idea is this. Hunter and I talked about this a little bit this afternoon They're teaching this upstairs, and I think this is a big one, especially for our young people. Watch out for those who desire to be real, but they don't have any desire to kill sin. And what I mean is, as you turn to Romans 8, we'll read it in a minute, you can get online, you can go to a lot of churches, you can read a lot of blogs, you can buy a lot of books where people are more than happy to talk about themselves in a self-deprecating way, and not just you know, humorously, but talking about sin and admitting sin and recognizing their shortcomings and all of that stuff. Sometimes I see people share articles online, and I read those articles, and the, the whole point of the article is like, well, I'm a total screw-up. We're all total screw-ups, but God loves screw-ups, and so it's all good. Don't worry about it. Just take it easy. And... Like, I'm tracking with them in the first part. Okay, you're a screw-up, check. I'm a screw-up, absolutely. God loves screw-ups, yes. But then you can't end the article, right? It's one thing to be real and honest and genuine and transparent about all this stuff, which a lot of younger folks like to do. But it's another step, another thing to take one more step and to say, We are screw-ups. God does love us despite ourselves, but he loves us so much that he is continuing the work that he started in us. He's not just going to leave us as the wicked, sinful screw-ups that we are, but he wants us to be whole and complete and mature. And we're going to talk about that this Sunday in Philippians 3. What does it look like to move to maturity? I just want you to see what Paul says in Romans 8.13. For those who want to recognize their sin but not do anything about it and just say, well, God is gracious. Romans eight thirteen. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God is going to do the work in you. He will be faithful to bring it to completion. And your responsibility in this process of sanctification is to put sin to death. Put to death. The deeds of the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. So be careful of those who don't mind talking about sin, but they don't do anything to actually kill it in their lives. Okay. Let me mention a couple of books, and then we're going to pray together. Some, some of my favorite books in this stack right here. and um, The first book is called, that I'll mention called Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And it says on the bottom, over a million sold. And I know a million is not a whole lot when you're selling like Harry Potter books and stuff. But when you're selling Christian books, that's a lot. And all that means is it wasn't a fad. It it stuck with a lot of people over a lot of years and uh, people have benefited from it. This is one of the first books we read together as a staff uh and as our elders when i moved here we worked through this book together pursuing holiness and um this is one of the very few books i tell you this every now and then this is one of the very few books that i've read more than once most books read them once great put it on the shelf i might go find it later for a quote or an idea or something but this is one that i've read more than once and and know that i'll read it again at some point a really really good book um He has a scripture for each chapter, and there are 17 chapters, and you can memorize those scriptures, and they're great verses that deal with sanctification and what that looks like in your life. Another book by the same author is called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And he starts the book off and he says, you know, we're really good at pointing out adultery and abortion and murder and all those big things. But what about things like pride and anxiety and unthankfulness and selfishness and lack of self-control and impatience and anger and being judgmental and envy and sins of the tongue and being worldly? All of those things that pretty much take place in your heart. And people can look at you from the outside and say, well, they go to church and they teach a class and they help at VBS. They look like they got it all together. But you know as well as I do on the inside, you can have the cup all clean but be full of bones and junk and dirt on the inside. And so this is a good book, helpful book for helping you think about some of the things in your life. I've studied this book with large groups and small groups before. And um, every time I've done it, Um, the people that have been in the study with me have commented to some effect of, like, I didn't realize that was an issue in my life. And it's exactly the same for me. You read through this and you think, I'm pretty good. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And you read the book and you're like, oh, but I do that. Oh, and that's a problem. And it just helps you to think through some of the things in your life where maybe God needs to work. Um, If you like short books, I like short books. There's a book by a guy named Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness. It's a really great book. And then the last one I'll mention is this. I have it down on the the difficult section, the challenging section. It's called The Mortification of Sin by a guy named John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan. And the whole book is basically um, a meditation on what we just read in Romans 8.13. If by the Spirit you put to deed put to death the the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he just talks about what does that look like in your life and how do you kill sin and how do you fight it. And this is not the kind of book that you can just whip through in an afternoon. But it is the kind of book that you can work through and think about and meditate on. uh, And it's very, very helpful to that end. So I'll leave these up here if you want to check these out. I would encourage you to at least take that list and think about Uh, getting some of those books. They're super, super helpful in Goodreads.